the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. This is the word to stand on for life with Pastor Ron Harbaugh. The word to stand on for life is a radio ministry of Calvary Chapel in San Antonio. A live call-in show here to help you answer your questions about the Bible and how to apply the word to your daily life. For more information on Calvary Chapel, visit our website, calvarysa.com. Get your Bible questions ready and call in now to 210-340-9585. It's The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Welcome to the show. Thanks for tuning in. I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh from Calvary Chapel in San Antonio, Texas, and this is The Word to Stand On for Life, a program dedicated to taking your phone calls and answering your questions, Bible questions, church questions, questions about stuff going on in your life. All you need to do is pick up the phone and dial 210-340-9585. If you're outside the local San Antonio area, you can call toll-free at 877-630-KSLR. That's 630-5757. You can email questions by emailing questions at calvarysa.com or you can use our free Calvary Chapel of San Antonio mobile app. And as always, if you are driving in your car, the safest way to call is use the free KSLR mobile app. Hit the call now banner at the top of the screen. You'll be connected directly to our studio producer. Hey, we've got a lot going on as usual. Tomorrow, Paula will be live in studio with us on the day-to-day edition of the program. Tonight, I'm going to be teaching uh, from Leviticus 24 and most of chapter 25. That's our Bible study night. Pretty interesting, applicable stuff, really. Uh, we've only got a couple more chapters after this to get done, and we're done with Leviticus. We're going to go to uh, Amos on Wednesday nights after that, and then when Amos is done, it's a short one. Uh, we'll be doing First and Second Chronicles. So let's get to some questions while we await your phone calls. 340-9585. Here is a question. This one is anonymous. Hello, Pastoran. Can you please... Help me understand Matthew 7, where it talks about judging. I confronted a believer who is living in sin with his girlfriend, and he threw this passage at me, and I didn't know what to do. I'm a relatively new believer, but I just want to know, was it wrong for me to do that? How are Christians supposed to help each other or lead people to Christ if I can't say anything? Thanks for the help. You know, it's an amazing thing, Anonymous. This verse, uh, judge not lest ye be judged. It seems to be known by every un- unbeliever in the world. And we like to throw it out. Well, don't judge me. God knows my heart. Well, we're not judging. And you did exactly the right thing. In fact, let me go one step farther and say that it is your responsibility. As a believer, when another believer is actively engaged in sin, it is our responsibility to confront them. Now, we don't do it in a... a, 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 a aggressive way. Uh, We do it humbly. We do it after examining our own heart. But it's our responsibility to go out and and tell them that, that as a believer, you can't be doing this. Now, the judge not lest you be judged is always an issue of the heart. Um, You're not judging. You're simply saying the Bible says the way you're living is sin, and people who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. That's that's the most loving thing you can say to a, a brother who is in sin. So it's really important. Uh, his defensive response, judge not lest you be judged, um, indicates he knows he's in sin. 
And what you've got to do is be brave enough. And God bless you as a new believer for being that caring and being that um, courageous is really an important witness to this other believer who ostensibly, if you're a new believer, uh, he's he's older in the Lord than you are. The other thing that we have to wonder is, are they really saved? When somebody who's living in sin, and, and as a pastor, I deal with this frequently. Somebody who's living with a girlfriend uh, or, or a girl who's living with a boyfriend, um, they're involved sexually in a relationship. Well, well, I'm a Christian. I always ask them, well, why do you say that? What makes you think you're a Christian? Well, I believe in Jesus. Well, if you believe in Jesus, he said, don't live the way you're living. And how you respond is going to determine who you are. You see, who we are is not who we say we are. Who we are is how we're actually living. And I think what you did was very brave. I'm going to say something else to you, Anonymous. Don't ever back down. This may cost you friends. And it's okay. That doesn't mean we go sin sniffing. I I think you all know what that means. It doesn't mean that we go looking for faults in other people's lives. But when we're confronted with it, when we know that it's true, then it's our responsibility. And, and, you know, the whole world may think you're, you're judging, but Jesus knows your heart. And he's proud of you. You've taken a stand for him, and he will stand with you. And in the process, you have proven that you love this friend or this other person. And so, no, you've got to tell him. You've just got to tell him. It won't make you popular, but the reality is you've got to tell people the truth, especially in these last days. Thank you for the email. I appreciate very, very much um, your approach. Here is a question. This one is from Jason. He says, in regards to church discipline as directed in 1 Timothy, have you ever had to expel, for lack of a better word, parenthetically, someone from your church because of sin? And if so, have him or her or they, if it's a family, have they tried to go to fellowship to one of the churches that you have planted? Is it normal practice for you to notify the other pastor and let them know that the person or persons now attending their church is under church discipline? Why or why not? Um, Jason, church discipline in our church culture is exceptionally difficult. And we still need to do it. But And I'll talk about that. But it's exceptionally difficult because typically people just leave one church and go to another one. And we don't know where they're going. Now, I I have had people leave this church because they were mad at me. Um, um, I had so many people angry with me over COVID because uh, we well, we came back and we we started doing church again, and they thought, well, that's irresponsible, that's dangerous, so I'm going to leave Pastor Ron's church and go to another church. That's just the way it is. That's not sin. They're just not using uh, good judgment. Um, but. Um, Somebody who is actively in sin to the point that they have to be disciplined by our church, they're probably not going to tell me where they're going to church. I have found out later, just as as a, a matter of fact, somebody mentions it, oh, yeah, so-and-so is at this church. And if I know that pastor, I'll call them and tell them. But the reality is that it's really, really hard to do it. Now, as to your question, have we ever had to do that? The answer is yes. Um, if you have a church, you're going to have people that sin, and you um, warn them, um, you you ask them to repent, and if they don't, professing believers, then we already have nothing to do with them any longer. And another reason that that's difficult to deal with is because a lot of times uh, other people in your church, you know, they're, well, well, he's a friend, or she's a friend, or, or we've always been close to their family, and we just want to love on them. They don't really know what loving on them really means. First Corinthians chapter 5, the Apostle Paul hands a man over to Satan for the destruction of flesh. He says to the church of Corinth, look, I, I, I know this. You guys are exalting in, in the fact that this man is in sin, but I've already handed him over to Satan for the destruction of his flesh. And, and church discipline was exacted. We know that six months later, when 2 Corinthians was written, we know this from chapter 2 of 2 Corinthians, that the discipline worked. The goal of discipline is restoration and reconciliation. And that's exactly what happened. The man was humbled and he was broken and it worked. Well, there's a lot of people who think that kind of discipline is mean-spirited. And, of course, we know that's not the case. Remember, just like I said to the last uh, person who wrote in his question, um, God knows your heart. 
And so, yes, we've had to ask people to leave because they refuse to stop sinning. And what we do is we simply tell them we refuse to pretend that you're a believer. A professing believer uh, who willfully sins against God, um, you're in a very dangerous place spiritually. So, yeah, we've had to do that. And, um, again, most of the time we don't know where they're going to church. So I hope that answers your question, Jason. Thank you. I appreciate it very, very much. Let's go to Ruben on line one from Seguin. Ruben, it's really good to hear from you. God bless you, Pastor Ron. It's, it's been a long time, a while at least. Well, thank you for calling. Uh, you know, uh, you you answered part of my my question with what you just said. Um, ever since dad passed away, I've just, I've been lost. I've been just, just going through a very, very difficult time and, um, allowing pain and, and, and resentment, bitterness, you know, to, to just, I mean, because, like, I mean, I, I'm all alone fighting this. My family's turned against me and and dealing with this. And then I've reached out. The last time I spoke, you told me I needed to get into a church. And <laughs> Excuse me, I'm sorry. Um, that's what I tried to do. I reached out to several churches here in Seguin. And, you know, um, it's weird because, like, they said they'd come get me and, on Sunday morning, I'd be ready, and then they wouldn't show up. And I'm just like, is it me? Is it just me or what? And now it's just like, you know, I'm just going to be honest. You know I mean? Because I can't lie. I can't lie to you, and I can't lie to God. I I don't feel like going to church, and, and I feel like, you know, I don't even feel God's spirit anymore, the conviction anymore. And I know that that's dangerous. Mm-hmm. And not that I'm sinning, but I know that that's dangerous. And I just, when I pray, I still pray. I force myself to pray, but I don't feel the way I I used to. And I just want to know: is this going to pass? Is it? Is it just me feeling sorry for myself? Or, or, I mean, I don't know. What What, what do you think? I'm. What What do you What do you think, Pastor? Yeah. Ruben, a couple of things immediately come rushing to mind. You know, one of the problems when we're emotional, especially when we're grieving. Uh, let, let me start by saying the devil has you in a chokehold right now. And he's applying the pressure and he's trying to get you to tap out. That's exactly what's going on. And um, and the reason, in part, uh, in the middle of your grief, and, and when we're grieving, when our hearts are broken, um, when you add the other elements, you talk about bitterness and anger and, and disappointment with other people. You add those things. That's the enemy. And he's just choking you and choking you and choking you. And God is saying, Reuben, I know you're in pain, but look up. He says, we grieve, but we don't grieve like those who have no hope. And he's asking you to grieve like someone with hope. And your hope is in the Lord. Your hope isn't in family. Your hope isn't in a church. Your hope isn't in anything else. You need to look up instead of looking in and emotionally being twisted. You've got to look up. Look up to the one who says, I love you. I've always loved you. I'll never leave you. I'll never forsake you. And then you've got to add the element of faith and believe that, Reuben, regardless of how you feel. You know, we've talked about your past spiritual experiences, and while it's great to have goosebumps, goosebumps don't sustain you during a time like this. So what you need is the certainty of the presence of Jesus Christ. The other thing, and you you mentioned I said it to you before, and I'm glad I did. I'll say it again. Uh, You're not alone. When people who are in your situation are suffering alone, it's because they choose to do so. Now, we've offered to come pick you up from church or for church. And, and, and I realize you live a long way away, and I realize that it's not always convenient. And I'm not trying to say, Reuben, you need to come to Calvary Chapel. You know my heart. But you can't do this alone. 
And when Christians insist on doing it alone, that's more of the enemy. Our battle is not against flesh and blood. Our battle is against the one who wants to destroy us. And you've got to fight hard enough. In spite of how you feel, you've got to fight hard enough to do that which will actually help you and, and, and bring you away from that, that lonely place and, again, put you in a body of believers. There's nothing you have to go through alone, not ever. And this is just a matter of fighting. Reuben, you've got to say, uh, I'm going to find a church. I don't care how long it takes. I'm going to find a place if I have to walk, if I have to take an Uber or whatever I have to do. I'm going to find a church that I can get involved in. And instantly, when you start looking up and then you look to minister to others, you start to lose the sense of, of being alone. You start to lose the sense of, of being lost in your grief. And the Holy Spirit does the work that he's going to do in your heart. And Reuben, the one thing I want you to understand is this is a battle you cannot win on your own. It is, however, a battle you cannot lose if you're fighting with the weapons that God has given you. And being a part of a church is critical. Not just going to church and sitting. Being a part of a church, getting involved, use the gifts that God has given you. And so it just has to be important enough for you to fight. So look up instead of looking in. Instead of thinking about how alone you are, you have the ability to solve that problem. And again, I think a local church is best, but what you do is you simply go in and you explain to the people there what you're going through and say, look, I need to be in a body. I need, I need to be helped. I need to be encouraged. And that's what the body of believers will do. Reuben, it's always good to hear from you. I need to know that you're doing okay. And uh, now that I know you're not, I will be praying for you even more. God bless you, my friend. Here's a question from Michelle. She says, I've heard you say this before, and I was wondering if you could explain the difference between the grace that saves and the grace that lives. Michelle, I love this question. Um, because this is something I tell our people all the time. There's two kinds of graces. His unmerited favor, that's the grace that saves. Uh, when God decided to save you, Michelle, when God decided to save me, we didn't deserve it. He poured out grace. We received that grace through faith. God even provides the faith. It's a gift from God. That's Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 through 10. And, and, and when we combine the grace God's pouring out with faith in that God... Then we're saved. But there's a different grace, a grace that lives every day. The man in the wilderness is a a picture of this in the Old Testament. Uh, God every day would spread out those billions of pounds of manna on the wilderness floor. And he told him, get just enough for this day. Don't get enough for two days. Get just enough for this day. If you get if you get extra, then it's going to rot and there's going to be maggots and things in it. And so they had to go out every day, every morning, trusting the Lord. Titus chapter 2, verse 11. And this is a wonderful verse for everybody in the audience to memorize. It says, The grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. It, the grace of God, teaches us to say no to ungodliness and uh, sinful living so that we can live self-controlled, upright lives in this present age. That's the grace that we need every day. So, uh, Michelle, I'm thrilled that God's grace saved me. I couldn't have done anything on my own. I didn't even believe. I had nothing to do with God except to curse at him at times. But then he saved me by grace. And then every day he gives me the grace to live. Paula and I, we talk about this together all the time. She'll be getting ready to go to bed, or I'll be getting ready to go to bed. And, and she oh, I used up all my grace. Well, we can go to bed every night knowing that a whole new batch of grace for living is available to us the next morning. And we can start all over again doing the work that God has called us to do. Part of that work, of course, is saying no to unrighteousness and living self-controlled, upright upright lives. So that's the grace we need every day. It's the power from heaven that is available to each and every one of us every single day. So grace that saves, 
But that same grace, once we become a believer, also is available daily so that we can live self-controlled, upright lives in the age that we live in. Pleasing to God. Good question, Michelle. Thank you very, very much. 340-9585 for your live calls and questions. Here is a question, Anonymous. What's the difference between First and Second Kings and First and Second Chronicles? Why would the Bible have both when they're very similar but have contradiction in details? Um, anonymous, there's no contradiction in details at all. Um, the, the difference is perspective. Now, here's the difference between First and Second Kings. Uh, and I'm going to be teaching First and Second Chronicles uh, fairly soon, uh, Lord willing, and uh, and I'm, I'm anxious to do that. Um, First and Second Kings is sort of telling the history of the kings from the perspective of the world. If we could look out, if, if every day we could get a newspaper from the time that First and Second Kings was actually happening, we would get the perspective of how things appeared from the perspective of things here on the earth. When you get to First and Second Chronicles, the perspective changes from heaven. And it's sort of what God sees, God who knows the whole picture. So there's no detail contradictions, but the perspective. For instance, it will say that um, 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 David was moved by the enemy to count his troops, uh, to, to, to do the census of his fighting men. And Chronicles were that it was the enemy who did it, and it was because God gave the enemy permission to do that. So those are the kind of things, but but the perspective is the only thing that's different. The details are not different. It's just how we would look at those details. And when we get to First and Second Chronicles, we're seeing the 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 details from the one who knows everything about them, and that of course is the Lord Himself. So that's why they're there. First uh, and Second Chronicles. Are, are so rich. I mean, they start off boring, but, but once you get into the history of the kings, uh, it is really, really, truly rich. Good question. Thank you very, very much. Three four zero ninety five eighty five. Here's a question from Will. I don't know if I have time for that. Let me get another one. I think we're inside four minutes now. Uh, here's a question. This one is from Penny. She asks, why is the humanity of Jesus so important? Um, the humanity of Jesus matters because uh, Hebrews will say that, that, that a man has to die for the sins of mankind. Um, God couldn't die. Obviously, God can't die, but, but there would be no a sacrifice. It takes kind for kind. And Jesus had to become a human so that he could die as an acceptable sacrifice for the sins of other humans. Um, and that's exactly why he had to become a human. That's why he, he was born a baby. The, the utter humility of Jesus, um, considering equality with God, not something to be held on to. Um, Jesus let all of that go. Now, Penny, the reason this is such a big deal is, is think of it from his perspective. One moment, Jesus is um, receiving the worship of angels, and in the next moment, he's, he's in the womb of a teenage girl and, and then finds himself going through the birth canal uh, being laid into a, a feeding trough, um, Jesus had to suffer that kind of humility. And so his humanity matters. If he wasn't a man, then he couldn't die for the sins of man. But because he was a man, and a man who didn't sin, then he was qualified to be the lamb without spot or blemish, the Passover lamb, the true Passover lamb. And the reality, Penny, is that only in his humanity could any of that be accomplished. Here's another reason his humanity is important. Because he was sinless, he had no sin nature to pass on. He wasn't fathered by a human being so that sin nature didn't pass from his father to him. That's why his father, being God the Father, and, and an act of the Holy Spirit, uh, uh, making sure that, that uh, Mary was pregnant, um, he was born... Uh, a human for sure, but he was born a human without a sin nature. And that means he couldn't have sinned 
even though he was tempted in all ways as we are, he couldn't have sinned. And because he didn't sin, then we know that the Father was pleased. You know, three times, as you go through the Gospel accounts, the Father uh, announces for all to hear his pleasure with the Son. This is my Son in whom I'm pleased. On the Mount of Transfiguration, this is my Son. Listen to him. And then, of course, with the resurrection from the dead, uh, the Father is saying, this is my Son, uh, the Son of God and the Son of Man. So Jesus had to be a human, He also had to be God, 100% man, 100% God. The God-man is a theological term. And the reality is, while that doesn't make sense to us, the Bible is crystal clear. He was 100% both. And when he was a human walking this earth, he veiled his deity so that he was not able to access anything miraculous except that which was in the perfect will of his Father in heaven. He never used his deity to do one thing for himself. Everything was focused on him serving his father and doing his father's will. Thanks, Penny, for the question. We've got 30 minutes left in our Wednesday show, 340-9585 or toll-free 877-630-KSLR. We'll be back in two minutes. Back to the word to stand on for life. We're taking your calls at 340-9585 or toll-free 877-630-KSLR. Now, here's Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Welcome back to the second half of our Wednesday show. Remember, Paul is going to be live in studio with me tomorrow on the date day edition of the show. That's always a great, great program. Here is a question that came in from Wilson. He says, in Ecclesiastes 4.12, what was the point of Solomon mentioning the three strands? He was talking about two the whole time and then mentions three strands. Is he talking about family? Wilson, he's not talking about family. Now, I love Ecclesiastes questions. I love the book of Ecclesiastes. It is a powerful, powerful testimony uh, to all of us. Um, here's the smartest man who's ever lived. A man who, by if we if we did comparative economies, was the wealthiest man who's ever lived, and he was a man who was the most powerful in terms of there was peace for the overwhelming majority of his life because God promised him that he would live in peace, and so when he's talking about this, the entire book of Ecclesiastes is he is now an old man. And he's reflecting back on a life, much of which was squandered, the wealth, the pursuit of knowledge, the pursuit of of pleasure, um, um, the pursuit of of, uh, interesting, anything and everything that interested in him. Um, he, He says, none of it matters. It's all vanity in the King James, uh, meaningless in the NIV, uh, chasing after the wind, trying to catch the wind. The picture's trying to grab the wind in your hands, and obviously we can't do that. So what he's saying is, look, I had everything. I denied myself nothing. I had everything that we, we ever would think would make us happy. I pursued every single interest, and at the end of my life, here's what I found, that everything apart from God is meaningless. So, Wilson, when he mentions the third strand, he's saying in Ecclesiastes 4, that's what I needed to do. Now, in the book of Ecclesiastes, and especially in this chapter, we've got two perspectives. Um, When I taught this, I called it an above-the-sun perspective. Those are the things of God. And a below-the-sun perspective. When Reuben called just a little while ago, I said to look up rather than look in, or, or I would add look out. Um, because we need to, to to put our minds and our hearts on things above. Well, um, this is an above-the-sun perspective. Um, when he says in verse 12, though one may be overpowered, two can defend themselves, he's talking about the reason, the importance of fellowship. Now, for us, in 2023, um, the, the, the application is Christian fellowship. I told Reuben that we can't do things alone. And that's when Satan has us. He wants us to be alone. 
That's why these verses um, um, explain why fellowship in Christ is so vital. You know, I hate the prevailing sentiment in, in, in much, if not most, of the church world these days. The church isn't necessary. Some would even say a waste of time. Um, people, um, we can serve God. We don't have to be part of a church body. That's nonsense. John Stott, uh, one of my favorite commentators, um, spoke about an unchurched Christian as the most grotesque of anomalies. And that's what it is. And yet in our church culture, it seems that many find church to be an unnecessary option, like we have a choice. That's not the truth. We need each other desperately. Desperate. That's the best thing about Calvary Chapel of San Antonio. Now, this, remember, is an above-the-sun perspective. Everybody who comes, I need them, and they need me. We need one another because that's how God makes us whole. So that's what we're doing. Now, this verse, when he says a cord of three strands is not quickly broken. Um, you know, we, we most of us have heard this used in marriage vows and there's all kinds of little um, um, rituals that people do uh, with, with cords. Um, and, and while it's true, that's not the context here at all. It's true, a marriage, husband and wife who love Jesus with Jesus the sinner, that's going to be an unbreakable marriage. So it's true, that's just not what Solomon is talking about. What he's talking about, Solomon is saying that we need one another and we, apart from God, everything is meaningless. I like the way he closed this. He's better a poor but wise youth than an old but foolish king who no longer knows how to take a warning. He's talking about himself. The youth may have come from prison to the kingship, or he may have been born in poverty within his kingdom. And then he says, Solomon, I saw that all who lived and walked under the sun followed the youth, the king's successor. There was no end to all the people who were before them, but those who came later were not pleased with the successor. This too is meaningless, a chasing after the sun. And if we learn anything at all from Solomon, we need to learn that everything that we look at from the perspective of earth is without meaning, real meaning. Everything that we try to do apart from God is going to end up frustrating us. It's going to end up empty, a chasing after the wind. And in Solomon's case, he found that out too late. This is a king that started better than any king ever. And he just didn't finish that well because he got turned away from his need for God. It's amazing, isn't it, that the smartest man who's ever lived was so smart that he thought for most of his life, well, you know, I don't need the Lord anymore. Now he'd call on him and he went through the motions, but he was really doing his own thing instead of God things. So that's why he turns in chapter 4. And literally it goes, that theme runs throughout the rest of the book. One other comment on Ecclesiastes, we need always to remember that this is a testimony. It's poetic in form, and it's not something that we can um, make doctrine out of. We need to understand the intent of the author. Thank you for the question. I appreciate it very, very much. 340-9585 or toll-free 877-630-KSLR. Here's a question from Micah. He says, what is the best way to examine yourself completely? Uh, Paul says that we're to do this daily, continually. Literally, it's in the continuous present tense. So, Micah, this needs to be a part of our condition every day. And the way we do it is to get alone and be with Jesus. You know, we're so busy and we, we, we fill up our schedules, the hours of the day with so much activity. And even when we go home and we rest, you know, there's always the phone, there's always texting, there's always social media, there's always these other things. And the reality is that we just don't have time to really say to the Lord, examine my heart. The other problem with examining our heart is when the Holy Spirit starts to touch on places that we don't want him to touch. We kind of shut it down. No, oh, I'm okay. That's all right. Okay. Uh, but, but what we need to do, Micah, is take the time. In the Word, the Word will point out 
what you need to deal with. And then you can just take a walk with the Lord or maybe just sit there with your Bible open and talk with the Lord. And he will put his finger on those things that that are causing you difficulty in your walk with the Lord. And there's no easy answer. It takes time. We need to invest in that personal relationship. And it is in our busy world the single hardest thing to do. It's something that we've got to fight for every single day. Time alone with the Lord. Thank you for the question. Here is Andy on line one from San Antonio. Andy, thanks for calling. You're on the air. Um, Thanks, Pastor Ron. Yeah, I had a quick question. Um, I would say maybe about a month or so ago, I was reading the Bible, and it was, I guess, a story that Jesus was talking about in regards to the shrewd businessman. Yeah. And I guess it was this guy that's like cutting other, you know, his master's debts in half because his hands are too soft for digging and he's too prideful to to ask for money. And and Jesus kind of approved of his shrewdness or, or just kind of the way he thought. And I just wasn't sure if you could add to that or because I, I don't I really don't get it. Yeah, and he, that 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 causes a lot of grief to a lot of people because it sounds like Jesus is approving his behavior, and that's not the case at all. What he's doing, he's saying, I'm going to put this uh, in in terms I think that everybody can really understand. What he's saying is that this man was concerned with what was going to happen after he was caught. I'm guilty of sin. He was a thief. He was stealing from his owner, an owner who was was trusted him and counted on him. And he was stealing, taking care of his own future. And then when he got caught and he knew he couldn't be the manager anymore, I love that line, you cannot be my manager any longer. Um, then he worked even harder to secure his future. And what Jesus is saying and what he's commending is at least this man, this unbelieving sinner, was concerned about his future. And he was really um, uh, ridiculing the Jews and the religious leaders who weren't concerned about their future. So that's what he's saying. He says at least this guy was smart enough to take care of his future and by saying that he was turning it around on them and saying if you really are interested in securing your future remember they talked about the kingdom of God they talked about belonging to God having Abraham uh, descendants of Abraham having the law of Moses and God says no if you're really concerned about your future then you would be concerned now now that I'm here and you're accountable to me to listen to me and to believe in me Remember, if you believed in the law, the law points to me. If you believe the prophets, the prophets spoke of me. And what he's saying is now is the time for you to be concerned about your future. And he's saying even the unbeliever in the, in the parable that he told, even that unbeliever was concerned about his future. And this was a warning to those who were listening to him, Andy. Uh, the warning was be concerned about your future to find out what's true. If I'm really who I say I am, you better check it out. The Word says I'm going to do these things when, when the Messiah comes. He's going to do the things that I'm doing. You've seen the miracles. You're accountable. If you were really concerned about your future, then you would at least do whatever it took to secure your future with God. So that's what he's saying, Andy. I hope that helps. Thank you, Andy. Love your questions. Here is a question from Andrew. He said, Pastor Ron, what happened during the 400 years between Malachi and the New Testament? Andrew, what happened was they just continued to sin, and they they, they pushed God so far out of their lives that uh, the, the God was silent. Those are called the silent years. Um, there was no revelation of God. There was no prophet of God. Uh, for 400 years, the people of God had no ability to hear from their God. And and as you can imagine, they did what seemed right in their own eyes. It's similar to the time of the judges that we have record of in our Bible. That was a little more than 300 years um, in the book of Judges. Well, in the silent years, those 400 years between the Testaments, uh, before John the Baptist showed up, they were on their own. They just pushed God so far out of the picture that there was nothing uh, for them to hear uh, or to do. So it's simply the people did what they wanted to do. 
or what seemed right to them. And of course, that's the reason that when John the Baptist showed up, the whole countryside went out. Everybody was thrilled that God was speaking again. And and even though they didn't like his message, they knew exactly that John was a prophet. And that's why the whole countryside went out. And it's also why John's message was repent, for the kingdom of God is now at hand. It's near. And um, we see that there were a lot of people that responded and a whole bunch more people who didn't, including and especially the religious leaders. So that's what happened between the 400 years. God just left them alone with themselves, and clearly, Andrew, things didn't go very well. Here's a question from Kenneth. He says, why do you not believe in healing when Isaiah 53 says we are healed by Jesus' stripes? Kenneth, this is why we need to be uh, workmen or workwomen rightly dividing the word of God. Uh, Isaiah 53 says nothing about physical healing. The atonement of Jesus Christ says nothing about physical healing. Now, obviously, in our church culture, there are all kinds of health and prosperity churches, name it and claim it, junk um, where they say, no, you just, the, the healing is guaranteed, so just claim it. If you have enough faith, God will heal you. Well, that's not the case at all. In Isaiah 53, it's the, the problem is our iniquities, the sin that separates us from God. First Peter chapter 2, verse 24 says, by his stripes we are healed, but the illness is the disease of sin. It's not physical disease. I get questions, people will say, well, well, isn't physical healing provided for in the atonement? The answer is no. Now, we do have gifts of healing in the New Testament. But those are gifts of healing given by the will of God. The Holy Spirit gives those gifts as God wills. We have no right to claim, we have no right to, to, to dictate to God that, well, I believe and the Bible says this, so you have to do it. And Kenneth, I've seen so many people's faith lives shipwrecked by those kind of claims. There is no promise of healing, physical healing in the atonement whatsoever. And the churches shame on them, the churches where people are saying you can just claim your healing. God doesn't want anybody to be sick. It's not his will. And all you have to do is have enough faith. Um those are false teachers, and they're destroying the walk that people have. So, Kenneth, don't get caught up in that at all. Here's an anonymous question. What was finished when Jesus said, it is finished? What was finished, anonymous, was his mission on earth. You know, it's interesting. We just celebrated Christmas. And Jesus, the baby, the baby was born for one reason and one reason only, and that is to die for the sins of the world. That's to die. He had to live a perfect, sinless life. He lived a life doing the will of God. He lived a life perfectly in the will of his Father. And every day he lived, 33 or so years, every day, he knew he was one day closer to his death. He had no hope of a future. He had no hope of a family. He had no hope of being successful. Jesus lived to die. That was his only purpose. And so when he was on the cross and he cried out, it is finished, what was done was his mission. Right after that, he said, Father, into thy hands I commit my spirit. And that's when our atonement, our reconciliation with God was accomplished. So Anonymous, that's what was finished. His mission on earth, it was as though he was looking to his father and saying, I made it. I made it. Remember, just the night before, he cried out, Father, if there's any way this cup can pass for me. And the father said, no, there's not. Jesus said, nevertheless, thy will, not my will be done. And his mission on earth was finished. We like to think, you know, especially those of us who have kids, we like to think that our kids are going to have goals and they're going to be successful and they're going to be happy in life. None of that applied to Jesus Christ. He knew every day was a day closer to death. A sword will pierce your own heart, Mary was told. When her baby was brand new, well, that's the situation for Jesus. When he said it was finished, it was the work that he came here to accomplish. And that work uh, was for you and for me. 
I like to think, and this is just the way I try to read my Bible. He cried out, Father, it's finished. Ron is saved. Ron will be yours. And when we really understand that, my goodness, changes everything. Here's another anonymous question. Uh, Pastor, you said during the pandemic that this was the end of the world as we know it. Why haven't you apologized for being wrong? Hmm. I never said that. That's why I haven't apologized for being wrong. I haven't said it at all. Um, I may have said, because we're in the last days, this is one of the things that God is going to use to get people's attention. I know that I said that God was going to use the pandemic to really shake out, not shake up, but really to shake out his church. And certainly he did that. We found out who were real believers and who weren't. But I never said that the pandemic was the end of the world. And in fact, um, my message to our church and my message throughout this radio program was, you know, we got to get busier than ever. We got to get busier than ever. Think about the pandemic for a moment. It was a time, the only time in my lifetime, when God was speaking to the whole world through that one thing, that pandemic. It doesn't matter what nation on this world that you lived in. People 10, 15,000 miles apart and more. We were all suffering from the same thing. That's never happened before. You know, we've had terrible disasters. We've had regional, um, even national calamities. But this was the whole world suffering from the same thing at the exact same time. And God was saying, look to me, look to me. And the world wasn't looking to him. But Anonymous, you need to be careful when you're quoting, folks, because I never said it was the end of the world as we know it. Uh, It changed the world. Um, Just like 9-11 changed the world. The pandemic has changed the world that we live in. But I never said it was the end of the world. So I'm, I'm trying to be really quick to apologize when I say wrong stuff. But in this case, I didn't say anything even close to what you said. Walter says, I think we're inside five minutes now. Walter said, who do you say the sons of God are in Genesis 6? Walter, I made this question for, I don't know, a year, maybe a year and a half, and I get it a lot. So um, uh, it's not an unusual question. Um, Every time the term sons of God is used, it refers to angelic beings. In this case, in Genesis 6, it's demonic angels, fallen angels. And uh, when you get to Genesis chapter 6, now remember, that's the chapter of the flood. So when you get to this, we see an all-out attack on by Satan to make the world so corrupt, every person in the world so corrupt, that Jesus, the Messiah, could not have come into the world. And that's why God judged so harshly with the flood every inclination of man's heart was only evil all the time God put a stop to it so the sons of God were fallen angels now the problem of course with that is people say well angels can't procreate well um, evidently there are some who could Jude talks about angels who did not keep their first estate or demons who did not keep their first estate Um, and, and they went after human flesh again trying to populate the world with such evil that the, the Christ, the Messiah, could never come. So that's who they were. They were the sons of God, the angels, the fallen angels, and the people that want to argue with me. They can argue with me. Some will say the sons of God are the sons of Seth. That makes no sense at all in the context. It also then would render the necessity of a worldwide flood in which only eight people were saved. It would render that flood unnecessary. God didn't just have a fit when he flooded the world. The judgment came at the right time, and God in his grace, God in his infinite patience, gave the people 120 years to repent completely. They refused. Noah, a preacher of righteousness, and they wouldn't listen. Thanks, Walter. appreciate the question. Here's our last question of the day. Jonathan, 
Was the law written just uh, for Israel, or is it for us as well? Jonathan, the law is for everybody. I mean, the law is um, applies, the law is righteous, the law is holy, uh, but it has a different effect. The law pointed out the sin of the Israelites for you and for me, because the law points out our sin, then the law points us to Jesus Christ. Galatians says that he, the law was a schoolmaster, literally a tutor leading us to the need for Jesus Christ. And um, so uh, our relationship with the law is completely different. Jesus fulfilled the law. He lived perfectly. Thus, he canceled the law. And so when you're reading the Old Testament, it says to the Israelites tonight in a couple of verses, uh, Moses say to the Israelites, uh, that's who the law was written for. For us, Jesus fulfilled the law and the code that opposed us was completely canceled. So our new law is the law of love, royal love, the law of grace, and uh, that's what we do. So, Jonathan, um, understand what the law was for, understand that it was good, understand that Israel didn't get it, and too many of us, we don't get it either, and we keep trying to do our best, and Jesus says, you can't just come to me for rest. Great questions. Hey, thanks for tuning in. Tomorrow, Paula will be live in studio. I know that is something you're looking forward to. May the Lord bless you and keep you. I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh from Calvary Chapel in San Antonio, Texas, and this is the Word to Stand On for Life. I'll be back tomorrow, Lord willing, at 4 o'clock on AM 630, The Word. We'll see you then. Thanks for spending this time with Calvary Chapel's The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. The Word to Stand On for Life is on every weekday afternoon at 4, and Pastor Ron invites you to find out more about Calvary Chapel at calvarysa.com. The Word to Stand On for Life was sponsored by Calvary Chapel of San Antonio. Star General Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.